Welcome, everybody. Oh, another episode of Vizier Please, a voyage, a hateful voyage through uh, the Delta Quadrant. I'm your host, Joseph. And I'm Peter. And uh, Peter, I got a critical question for you straight out of the gate. Did your child shit on you <laughs> before this episode? Uh, well, I am pleased to report that not only did the baby not shit on me, she did not shit on herself uh, or the carpeting. So this was a relatively fecal-free episode for my household. Well, you know, I, I feel like if that's like some sort of arbiter or avatar of what is to come, that's a good indicator of the quality of the episode. Did your baby poop on you? Yeah, you know, uh, I was thinking she might have some of the oracular abilities that I do, and uh, if we were to use her poop as a metric as a forecaster for what was to come i would say she was uh right on the money this uh episode two are we going to call this episode two or would this technically be three since that first one was a two-parter well you know what let's go ahead and and go with the netflix numbering and the netflix numbering says this is episode two so yes uh season one episode two parallax uh pretty good i would say yeah like it, it was a nice uh, change from what was a slow descent into the mouth of madness as we watched uh, the pilot. This was this was pretty solid. You know, we let a couple of our friends listen to uh, the podcast, and one of them who didn't even listen to our podcast just went down this laundry list of like anger points. Man, are you sure you weren't just sitting in the room with us while we're recording this podcast? Because you just. <laughs> You just punched all the buttons right along with us, man. It was kind of uh, comforting to know that our complaints about the episode were more universal to other Trek fans. Yeah. I, you know, I as big a fan of this whole franchise I've been my whole life, I have never been to a convention, had really like in-depth conversations with a large body of Trek nerds, Trekkies, Trekkers, whatever terminology you want to use. And so this has been an adventure as we've started to begin our halting steps out into the universe as far as letting people see this project and hear it that um, we're in good company uh, when it comes to the premiere of Voyager. I'll tell you what. uh, I didn't pay attention to anything you just said because you started talking about conventions and I had a flashback. I've been to conventions. (laughs) My, My dad took me to my first Star Trek convention and my dad's pretty cool and saw that I was into it and he took us, and I've never seen my dad cross into regret faster than I did on that. <laughs> I was young. I was impressionable. I was like, yeah, let's hang around for what these guys are going to say up on stage. He's like, no, we're leaving now. And I was like, oh. No, son, I must protect you from this dark revelation. I yeah, must steal only... you from, this, from, from this, this life you would lead. Well, spoiler alert, you failed, Dad. <laughs> and speaking of failures in leadership... Uh, the episode becomes in uh, in sick bay. We've got this guy. We he was in the premiere, Lieutenant Carey. We he had a vocal cameo. I think he had a quick uh, appearance in the engine room. Unlike the chief engineer who got zip. Yeah, it zotted off camera, and you never even saw the corpse. This guy we actually saw, Lieutenant Joe Carey. He's all busted up. He's got some some fake blood on him, and uh, he is he's not happy uh, because he has apparently been. Punched in the nose by one Bellana Torres, and he he's recounting this little workplace incident, 
uh, to an interested uh, Tuvok and Chakotay and an entirely disinterested uh, holographic doctor who is being a delightful asshole to him. I wanted more blood. I think if you're going to get your nose busted by a half Klingon that more than a little bit of... It looked like he had some old ketchup on his face. But you know what? This is UPN. You're not allowed to show too much. I'll tell you what, man. I'm watching uh, Discovery. They are not pulling punches on Gore and that. It looks like a fucking slasher film. So maybe that's why uh, this little smattering of red across his nose wasn't doing it for me. That's network TV versus the internet. I was also, you know, 1995 versus 202018. 20 gritty. Evidently they had a, a workplace dispute that very quickly went violent for uh, what is portrayed as indefensible reasons. They break that party up with, with him, you know, stereotypically shouting at the door about wanting that crazy woman off of his engine room and all this other stuff. To, uh, to a Sorkin walk and talk. But they did this long tracking shot, kind of in the hallway, in the round. Yeah, how long do you think that hallway corridor really is? I mean, I think they probably walked the duration of the set. I mean, that shot was probably 30, 45 seconds. So in that shot, that's uh, Tuvok saying, hey, uh, I'm going to throw this broad in the brig for 75 to 200 years until we get back. And then, you know, she's going to get a court martial. I think he says specifically that the captain has the authority to court martial her right there. Like right. He's, all, he's by the book. He's like, all right, well, we're going to transfer her to prison and we're going to have the court martial. And that's that. So let's make that happen. Like he's he's locked and loaded to do this by the book. And Chicote is trying to convince him. Give me a chance to maybe uh, to handle this differently. And uh, and Tuvok takes him convincing, which you start to get the feel for where this episode's going to go, that they're going to finally address some of these unspoken questions that they jammed at the end of the, of the premiere about these Maquis guys. I, I wouldn't say there was convincing going on here. I would say that uh, Chakotay tried to, like, straight up intimidate Tuvok into backing off the book on this one. And I got to say that if this is the scene where Chakotay really starts trying to put his foot down and inspire belief that he's this uh, fiery, radical leader, he shits the bed hard. Chakotay has to be the least intimidating guy I think I've ever seen on Star Trek. Him trying to browbeat and big dog on Tuvok was was ridiculous. I would say Wesley Crusher has more intimidation in one of his pumpkin ruffle sweaters than Chakotay's got in that whole uniform. It is Absolutely apparent that is the case when the fact that he uses the same tone in this conversation as he does in the very next one with two Maquis soldiers looking to mutiny the ship. It's the same tone of voice. It's the same passionless droning voice that he uses in both. You know, I've heard that voice before, and I have to say that is the ship's counselor's voice. Like, this dude should be wearing a teal score. Oh, that is – that's bullshit, my friend. There was actually – you could actually see some intonation when Marina Sirtis was on screen. That is nonsense. He's 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 a, he's a flat-out cardboard cutout. He's very good, though, at using doors and turbo lifts for dramatic effect. Because it's like he gets on that turbo lift at the end of that conversation with Tuvok specifically so he can have that sort of parting words moment. And as these doors part, so so shall my words. I wouldn't be surprised if he just like sat there and just waited 10 seconds for Tuvok to leave and then like peeked his head out. Like I didn't actually have to get on the elevator. <laughs> it, was just, it was just my dramatic exit. So yeah, the, the two Maquis come up and they're like, oh, hey, you know, boss, even though there's like 12 of us, let's mutiny this shit. Uh, one of those two in there was uh, what, Ensign Seska? Yeah. Yeah, Seska is in the in the blue uniform. She so knowing that again, what little bit I do know about uh, Voyager that she's gonna you know she's gonna have a, a heel face switch here. 
or I guess a face heel switch. Uh, I'll be paying attention to her scenes. But yeah, he's like, yo, I ever hear you two talking like that again. I'll throw you in the brig myself. Yeah, okay, whatever, Chakotay. He says that with all the authority of a fucking substitute teacher. After that, he transitions to go to talk to Balana, and, and I guess... Throws of passion. Roxana Biggs got, like, apparently her performance notes from the premiere, and it was one sentence, and it's continue to be angry, because that's basically all she does in the scene. So, so the scene starts, the doors open up, She uh, Chakotay comes in, right as she's having, you know, a rage moment. They got that whole set they could have thrashed. She gave a punch in holes in the wall or denting bulkheads. She grabs, like, a silver cup. <laughs> and, like, meekly throw it, throws it at, at Chakotay's feet, like, ah. Throws it at a safe vector so it'll just bounce up and at the worst, you know, they'll have a space injury of a, a nicked ankle or, okay, Klingon, whatever. Chicote comes in and, and gives what my wife calls the, you're a loose cannon, Kowalski. You gotta calm down. It's not actually a good idea just to punch people when you disagree with them, which I don't understand what's happened in the intervening time period from now to the 24th century, that that has to be a lesson imparted to anyone. But here we are, we're having some basic HR lessons with uh, substitute teacher uh, Chicote. I liked his uh, approach on that though because he's like you're making my day real shitty with your actions and i thought it's cool that he's not just a purely you know humanitarian it's just like look we're we're in a rough spot here and you are fucking all of it up like i've gotten a decent spot on this ship and now you're putting me in the hot seat i think that the character of chakotay is put in a position in in written dialogue that is appropriate to what they're trying to portray with him I just don't think that that the actor manages to deliver on all of that. And I think it becomes more apparent as the episode goes on because there's a couple really good scenes that he doesn't manage to screw up, but but definitely is the junior partner in. Here's my observation. The sickbay scene, he's real timid. The uh, attempted intimidation of Tuvok I thought was pretty flat, but... I think he actually dresses uh, Torres down pretty well. And he has a later scene with um, with uh, Janeway where he gets pretty fiery. I think I might give him the misogynist award. Maybe maybe he only feels good uh, yelling at women. He wants Torres made engineer, chief engineer, because it gets, gives him more opportunity to yell at her. And he doesn't miss the opportunity for a dramatic use of the door to end the, uh, the prologue scene. Yeah, there's, there's many doors in engineering, too. This guy is... This guy's empire building right now. Following the scene, the next shot is in the briefing room. I'm not sure why they shot it this way. Half the shots seem to be done from this, like, low angle with the camera, like, in the middle of where the table should be. It's a teleconference, and you're getting to view the, the senior staff meeting from the view of the webcam. I don't know why they decided to shoot it that way, but that's what they did. And the green screen effect for the the Starfield behind Janeway is super bad. I don't know if it was noticeable to you, but it was super noticeable to us when we were watching it that her cut in on the green screen is very obvious. I wasn't even paying attention. I was more captivated by the fact that they have this huge ass room on this ship for, I would say that that their meeting room is like two enterprise d conference rooms put together with like this weird triforce table and it doesn't seem like a very good use of uh ship space to me really i felt like that room was smaller than the d's conference room it looks like they felt like the table was was much smaller like they didn't have chairs for snarf snarf and the child bride when they show up we'll get to that in a second so they're having this confab over apparently the ship falling apart already i don't know if they missed their thirty thousand mile service before they left ds9 you know they only put 10 bucks into the pump i don't know 
what happened, but apparently the warp drive is starting to not work. They're running out of energy. It's not good. Yeah, it's, uh, it was a 15% drop in drive speed. Like, it's a deep space exploration vehicle. How's your engine already effed up? Because I saw, I saw the accident you guys got into. Not that big a deal. I mean, this ship is designed to go through the farthest reaches of space and, and roll and cruise around at super high speed. And here you are, like, a week into the into your mission. Yeah, you got banged up a little bit, but it wasn't too bad. You fought a bunch of space hoopties. You fought the fucking Kazon. They aren't that cool. And your shit's already falling apart. You know what the K and Kazon stands for? Kmart. These are Kmart <laughs> villains. They are Kmart These dudes are. They're Kmart Klingons. That's exactly what that they are. That's exactly what they are. These motherfuckers got elastic waistbands in their jeans. That's 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 a quality <laughs> of villain we're dealing with here. Um, my takeaway from this little briefing here, they gloss over two things which seem pretty big to me. Well, you know, the first thing is Kim like, oh, you know, we, we tried to get the holodeck to be able to power, you know, the rest of the ship. But for some zany reason, this uh, this one ship system is just completely incompatible with everything else. So don't worry, writers. We're not going to be in danger of losing, you know, the uh, space LARP opportunities that the dangerous holodecks provide us. Hey, listen, writers need to phone it in every once in a while, too. There's a, If I remember correctly, there are a lot of holodeck episodes, each one more preposterous than the other one. And I would say right off the bat, Janeway's got the right idea about trying to shut those motherfuckers down. It's got to be well known through Starfleet at this point that the uh, holodecks should be called by the uh, Professor Xavier School for the Gifted name, and that is Danger Rooms. <laughs> I will say that Voyager has the single best, by far, holodeck episode in all of Star Trek. And I cannot Well, wait. we'll get to it's, that one. Oh, it's deep. We're deep. We got to get deep into the series before we find it. But when we do, it's a delight. Well, I'll be waiting for it. And the other big thing was uh, them just real casually mentioning that, oh, by the way, the replicator's off, which pretty pretty big deal for, for the show. I mean, a lot of stuff springs off of that. And uh, Ronald Moore, who you talked about before, you know, he was in some Deep Space Nine episodes. I, I read something pretty interesting saying that, you know, all the Star Trek writers hated the replicators because having the, the presence of the replicators remove the plot opportunities to have like we need to get thing x to to save the day and when you got a replicator you just replicate 100 thing x's uh so them removing the replicators necessitating a need for hydroponics and and food being grown on the ship and being able to reintroduce the concept of hey we have to go on a wild goose chase to get thing x pretty big deal and just having a throwaway line as to why they're down was kind of a head scratcher yeah i mean i get that uh, when you have uh, essentially an unlimited capacity to create unlimited things, uh, it creates a, a lack of dramatic tension when it comes to scarcity of resources. So yes, 100% down with them trying to institute some level of scarcity. But the fact that they give it to Kess in a throwaway line, so, you know, Snarf Snarf and the Child Bride show up. There's no seat for them. They sort of invite their way into the room. Neelix does not have the foresight to have brought with him party tacos if he's going to crash a party like this. Twelve tacos is the recommended Taco Bell uh, limit of tacos to bring to induce a party. And he did not bring the tacos. He just brings his child bride with a very unfortunate wig. Kess is the one who sits down and is like, here, uh, I'm going to actually be useful and I, I want to problem solve this whole us not starving to death thing, which does not get mentioned by anybody else. Seems like it would be a really big fucking deal. 
Uh, but she, you know, she's immediately got a, an answer for it. Every, and, and Janeway's like, you know what? That's what you're doing. That's your job now. You're, you're going to make it so we don't starve to death. Hey, back out for a second here. This is a senior briefing meeting. They're talking about some heavy shit. They start getting to like crew assignments and some other like real sensitive stuff. You got Snarf Snarf showing up with his child, Brian. She's like, oh, yeah, go ahead, sit down. Listen to all this shit. I have no idea if you guys really mean anything good for this ship. Neelix, you've already basically bamboozled us once to get, you know, use us as a vehicle to get what you wanted by ambushing or double crossing the space Kmart Klingons. But, you know, go ahead and listen to all our dirty laundry. And despite the fact I don't know if you guys are spies or saboteurs or ultimately going to try and F us over, I don't even know if you guys are, are loose lip blabbity mouths. They're going to take all the shit we're talking about here and fucking run into like cargo room B or the fucking John and be like, oh, damn. Lana Taurus about to get promoted over these fucking Starfleet dudes. I'm glad that you're not working for one of the other races that got beamed from the parts of the galaxy or some fucking God knows what we haven't met in this quadrant yet. Let, let me give you the inner workings of the ship. Yeah. Yeah, just wait till they see the Sears Romulans. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> it was like Romulans, but like their ships have become depressingly understocked. You know, with the expectation <laughs> that they're going to be closed at some point in the near future. They can only cloak uh, three quarters of the ship anymore. I mean, no shit. My wife and I went to Sears this past weekend. There was one table where they just had two sweaters on it. Clearly could be stacked, usually stacked high with sweaters. All they had was two sweaters to put on it. I mean, the whole place was essentially half empty. It's a depressing thought. And speaking of depressing thoughts, Paris made a quick stealer yo girl move. With Cass? Did you catch that? Oh, here, take my seat. Oh, yeah. He miladied her pretty good there. Tom Paris, baddest boy in the Delta Quadrant, never skipping an opportunity to size up the available options and, and start planting some seeds that, you know, may grow in the future. Well, you know, now that unfortunately the Betazoid Helmsman is dead, he's got plenty of time. His dance card just freed up. Also on the, the Paris thing, so what's the crew complement on the Voyager? Like 150-ish? Yeah, I think we said 141. Nobody's got any medical training. That's why they're like living and dying by the emergency medical hologram. And then uh, the suggestion gets made, well, hey, let's uh, let's make someone, you know, the doctor's hands and eyes on these away team missions since he's stuck in the uh, the medical bay. Janeway's like, oh, hey, why don't we use Tom Paris? Like, what, what was going on there? I mean, well, first of all, I'm going to jump back to your belief that she's got the hots for him. So maybe she's trying to give him some brownie points. Was that just an obvious, like, we need to have a reason why the helmsman is beaming down on the planet surfaces. So let's make him make him a medic. I mean, it does provide you with an opportunity to get him out of the pilot's chair and doing other things. It gives you some background on his character, uh, helps him develop later on a little bit. I mean, I think you're right. I, I prefer the headcanon that this is Janeway, like, subtly find ways to help her, her side piece, Tom Paris. She wants to play doctor later on, and she's going to need some knows their way around latex gloves. Hey, I don't blame her, you know? Tom Paris, a strong man. Well, he's a, he's a galactic bad boy. He's an intergalactic bad boy. I mean, I can see where the attraction would be, so I don't blame her. All right, so they wrap up this meeting uh, with uh, some, some suggestions that Taurus gets considered for uh, this position of uh, chief engineer, and Janeway's looking at Chakotay like, I don't think so, bro. 
And before they can really get any more into that, suddenly they run into some space turbulence, and they got what? Go, yeah, I know. Real fucking surprise in Star Trek. They hit they, they hit the the space bumps, and they roll out to the bridge, and they find that they have run straight into a, a big old space hazard of some kind of of weird glowy thing. You know, it's their first weird shit they found in the Delta Quadrant, aside from being beamed there in the first place, and aside from that underground mall. Aside from the L.A. mall that they found underground, yes. And uh, it's a quantum singularity. I think it's a class three quantum singularity. And they see that there's a ship uh, that seems to be trapped on the event horizon. And being the cunning uh, Starfleet do-gutters that they are, they immediately launch into a plan to save this ship. It's kind of on the distance. It's a little blurry. They don't really know what it is. They can't get in touch with it. They see it's broadcasting. I'm going to call bullshit on that because, again, we're watching these on a high-def TV. These things have not been upscaled. It's the original 480 standard def. As soon as they showed the thing on there, I'm like, that's fucking Voyager. Like, that's very clearly an intrepid-class starship. (laughs) It's very clearly at least a Federation starship. It had the classic design. Like, I mean, I I remember this episode well enough that I knew that was the plot. So it wasn't even a mystery to me, but... I didn't know shit, and I saw that thing, and I was like, that is the fucking Voyager, and they're about to get into some fucking temporal bullshit here. Before we we have that revelation, and it is supposed to be a revelation when it happens, Janeway decides that they're going to rescue the ship, and they're trying to troubleshoot for ways to do it after the easy stuff doesn't seem to work, and Chakotay makes a power play to get Torres involved, radios down, and says, hey... Bellana, you got any ideas on how we can save this ship? She's like, I got this crazy idea. And Janeway just kind of shoots him a glance, a, ch- a challenging glance from this this clear ursipation of the chain of command that he's just pulled by sort of injecting Bellana into the situation. And it's, it sets up the next scene quite nicely. This scene here, you know, when they encounter this thing, I would say there's two kind of, this one especially, eye roll moments where it's just some direct talking to the audience with like, what's a temporal anomaly? And then Neelix pulling uh, Kess off and they wander off like, uh, sometimes when a spatial hazard likes a Federation starship, the two come together in a dangerous quantum singularity and endanger everybody's life and blah, 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 blah. It's like, uh... Okay, come on, let's get back to... I mean, this is what you just decide to take a step away and do 30 seconds of expository dialogue about? This is the thing? Yeah. And, and it's also, like, I think the last scene that Neelix is in in the whole episode is him trying to impress his child bride with his his exploits and quantum singularities. Yeah, this is a shorty for him. Uh, and, you know, again, two relative unknown quantities on their ship open access to the the nerve center command bridge without any second thoughts i didn't throw this out here during the opening thing but neelix was my god what was he in high school the biology teacher was his uh brother-in-law oh shit yeah yeah i can't i'll have to dig my uh, yearbook out and try and find the name but yeah his uh his brother-in-law was a teacher for charles f brush <laughs> Uh, Ethan Phillips is the actor's name, aside from the fact that he does a lot of of Trek-related convention appearances. I don't really know about anything else about his work. Well, this isn't his work. This was his brother-in-law's work. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Ethan Phillips went to go be a teacher after this. So anyways, uh, the next scene, Captain's Ready Room, and Chakotay gets ready to come out swinging on the second female. (laughs) This is the strongest scene in the episode. It's probably the strongest scene in the show so far. Uh, Because Janeway basically, I don't know, 
she has basically a checklist of all of your complaints from the last episode about her hating her crew and the absurdity of the idea of Maki terrorists suddenly getting to be, you know, on par with her career officers. And she actually just rolls right through that and is like, I, you are insane if you think I'm going to have my Starfleet graduated professional staff members report to one of your ruffians. That shit is not happening. Chakotay should have cut her off right then and been like, your Starfleet recruit. You mean that fucking felon Tom Paris, that felon terrorist Tom Paris sitting in there? I, I think the, the the only thing he manages to get out is the whole meek, like, what about me? You're asking him to follow me. And she's like, bitch, you're qualified. You actually graduated from the academy. You were you, you, were, you had Starfleet Command experience. I can justify you being my first officer. You expect me to justify one of your, like, white trash hilljack terrorist friends suddenly being in charge of people who essentially have advanced degrees in the shit that they're doing? Give me a fucking break. It was a great scene because... Kate Mulgrew just is like owns that dialogue and 100% lays out a compelling case for why Chakotay is crazy to think that this is going to go down like this. I think he holds his own. Uh, I'm not thrilled about the Chakotay character, but uh, I think he does. Right. Also pay attention to the way that people are pronouncing his name. Like everybody's kind of like Chakotay. Anytime to court to uh, Torres Bolanos has it. She's like Chakotay. She does it all ex- with this like exotic verve. She knows him. She knows the right way to say his name. And, well, I mean, they they do indicate a level of intimacy between them later on, so we'll uh, we'll wait for that. But uh, I do agree partially with you in that he manages a, a great point near the end of, like, you are going to have to let this go if you want these people to work for you. Sure. Uh, I want to kind of gloss through some other stuff. They start checking in. Kes goes in by the EMH. Has Robert Picardo's eyes always been kind of, like, cross-eyed? I don't recall that. I like that scene that he had with Kess. It's probably my second favorite scene where showing his obvious annoyance and being summoned up to provide dirt, you know, and starts bemoaning his status as, as now having to deal with everyone's bullshit. And he just he just kind of delivers on all this this subtle emotion. Yeah, flip side of that, I thought Kess does a nice job starting to, like, humanize him right out of the gate and causing him to, like, question his own reasons for existence and, you know, consider maybe there's got to be more to it. I, I think his eyes are crossed, or he's cross-eyed. It was really drawing me out, and it was something I never noticed before. I'm going to look carefully for that next time. I don't, I don't think I've ever noticed that, but I agree with you. I mean, Kess really, uh, uh, the naivety of her character, literally being, you know, a born yesterday-ish type of perspective, plays super well into the scene, and, and you finally kind of get a little bit more of a feel for the Doctor, and you get a little bit more for feel for Kess, too. So, And it, it sets up this techno babbly issue with the doctor's emitters somehow which i enjoyed somehow getting smaller and they do a perspective where where suddenly kiss is taller than the doctor when when at the beginning she wasn't Mm -hmm. and they they cut to the big rescue attempt so so before you jump off of that kiss paying attention to the height it's like voyager is able to predict the future in 2018 where everybody on tinder is height obsessed Yeah, suddenly Robin Ricardo and not even have any one swiping right for him. So yeah, they they try. There's a fuck up. You know, the, this whole middle part here, and and I wanted um, you know, I'm bitching the first episode about how everybody's just getting together like peanut butter and jelly. This episode, everybody in that engineering department seems hell bent on being a dickhead, and like it is the most un. Roddenberry future utopian society ever, with just anybody getting a chance to throw a right hook at someone else's. Uh, feelings that day and they're just letting them go crazy it's realistic in the circumstance they are portraying and i think 
and we'll get to this at the end, is why this episode's a little bittersweet. But if it has a weakness, it's all this fucking Shiki Cam and Techno Babble. I swear there were like four big scenes with all this endless Techno Babble and then three almost difficult to watch Shaky Cam sequences. And this is the first constant shake for minute two minutes at a time moment as they're trying to break loose this quote-unquote mystery ship from the singularity what this does is it drives home so this inner i'm sorry not bridge. this uh voyager bridge this is the biggest bridge you've seen on a hero ship so far like in terms of surface space and height like this is a three-level ship compared to like i think the enterprise was two and it's cool i like the abstract bridge design i would really think that the crew might want to think about more railings or softer railings or handholds or seatbelts or something because people are just getting tossed all over this motherfucker you would think federation starship would have some hand you know, rails or some padding on things now or maybe not consoles that explode you would think that what, <laughs> what the fuck is the federation's version of osha doing like i, I mean how, how they not look through these these accident reports and be like okay uh guys we've got a problem when it comes to navigation consoles exploding and killing helmsmen look look at these q2 numbers it's these uh, it's these neural gel packs. They're uh, by old layman's terms, it might as well be called fucking C four. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised this bridge doesn't actually feature like at the bottom of the stairs like a punji spike pit, the way they're shaking people and throwing them all over the place. It's like someone there was just like, well, how many ninety degree hard edges can we just build into this thing to cause as many injuries as possible? They they finally get through the failed attempt to. Uh, Get the ship out. The next scene is back in the ready room, and it's uh, my wife called the most awkward job interview of all time when Bellani gets called in to have a talk with Janeway about being the chief engineer. And, uh, you know, Bellana apparently needed to go to some career skills classes before she joined the Maquis because she says all the things that you would say if you wanted to be convinced not to hire somebody. Like, she would be absolute garbage at supervising people. She just kind of admits that. She would be bad. She has no people skills. You can chalk that up to self-doubt or whatever. The the bigger issue there is just uh, her knee being needlessly antagonistic to Janeway. And and the flip side of that is Janeway even putting up with this shit. Like, she's not keen on uh, tours in the first part. She brings her in on Chocote's request. I'm going to bounce that bitch out of there within the first 30 seconds when, like, you know what? You don't want the job cool see you later i know right like okay i mean you're smart but we'll use you for good ideas and we'll obviously let somebody who won't punch people and won't be an absolute you know torres good for two things uh wacky tractor beams and uh anytime we need a silver cup thrown at someone's boot <laughs> and uh before they can uh wrap up the uh the interview um they have a a little uh cut back to the bridge because what happened is after they failed to get the ship out they resolved to go find this friendly race that neelix told them about to maybe help them get the ship out and they find that suddenly they're back at the same weird uh space anomaly uh that they started at even though they shouldn't be it was a good skidding tingly moment i thought and this is something i want to reach into at the end of the episode when we got some some open floor discussion time but Temporal loops, I would think, would have to be like the one of the top five like Starfleet personnel fears. You would think so, but I think we have a scene at the end of the episode or close to the end of the episode that is very weird when it comes to discussing that very topic. 
Well, that's they do a, um, a staff meeting to discuss what's going on and try and come up with some assessments and some workarounds. And it's basically where they lay out the whole temporal distortion theory, where for the first time in the series, I really feel like I'm sitting in the seat right there alongside Tom Paris, where I'm like, this is ridiculous. What the fuck? Oh, we're not there yet. That's actually another staff meeting later. So this is the middle staff meeting where... Once again, Chakotay like manages to get Torres involved, and Joe Carey also gets brought in because there's still this weird indecision. Even though Torres had the worst fucking job interview of all time, yeah, because they haven't figured out yet that the the ship is them, right? And so we have another, I want to say, five to ten minutes of the episode where they are are slowly finally coming to that realization. Eventually, they do. A lot of stuff happens. You see Harry Kim, uh, Garrett Wang try and act like he's in pain in the hallway in a comedically bad scene with a headache. The worst acting. He literally like goes to one knee and goes, ow, my head. I'm captivated by his beautiful, silky, flowing hair just bobbing around as he's rhythmically jerking it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's right up there with all the... Uh the shaky cam uh, ship explosions is like him again shaking his way down to the floor in yet another long hallway walk. I think that hallway gets like four different scenes in this episode. Pretty pretty good clock time for that hallway for an all episode or for an all ship based episode. They gotta save money on on building out all these sets. You know, it's only season one. They need to accumulate some budget. Fuck that. I'll take that hallway one hundred percent of the time if it means no more uh, SoCal mall escalators. Garrett Wang's game attempt at attempting to portray pain aside, um, they eventually figure out in this this comically ridiculous moment when they finally do the the Blade Runner enhance enhance and see that the ship that's they've been tracking that's near the the anomaly is them. Tom Paris literally stands up in front of the green screen, looks towards the camera, and says, "It us." It's like, yeah, we know. We Everyone else has figured this out, except for all of you. Well, I still thought it was a pretty good, like, uh, tingly moment for them to, to bust out. Certainly a better space dilemma than the fucking caretaker was. They finally have their third and final staff meeting about it. And this is where we have the ridiculous Tom Paris questioning the logic of temporal mechanics and then being dismissed moment where they're trying to explain that it's them. And so they're getting the things they've already done uh, in terms of these transmissions they're getting, and this is why they can't actually save the ship and all this. And Tom Paris brings up, wait a second, weren't we brought here because we heard a distress signal? And haven't we not sent a distress signal? So how is it that we got brought here if the thing we did to bring us here hasn't happened yet? Which is the clear paradox in play. And then he's like, doesn't this make sense? He literally says, like, Does, am I making sense? And then Chainway's like, nah, you just, it's you, it's okay. Don't worry your pretty little head. It's all right, buddy. Real pat on the head moment. And, and you know, I'm usually pretty good at keeping shoulder to shoulder with like, you know, the Star Trek dilemma pile. But they're laying this thing out and I'm, I'm trying to like pinpoint, yeah, like what what's the precipitating event here? Are they, you know, because there's a couple TNG episodes where like, you know, the, the crew you're following weren't the ones who created the the cascade failure, you know, the precipitating event. Uh, so, uh, again, this is another talking to the audience. Let's bring people up to speed on what ridiculousness we're trying to lay down here. Her patting him on the head and like the whole scene, or the whole crew like looking at him like, Tom, you're so stupid. I felt it was like a you're so stupid directed at the audience for being right there with him. It was completely unnecessary, too. Like, why, why, why belittled poor Tom Paris and therefore us by bringing up 
the big obvious paradox and just be like, that shit doesn't matter. Like, either provide an explanation or let it go. But they don't do either of those things. I would also respect a captain's like, you know what? Fuck it. It doesn't matter. We're stuck here now. Move past the uh, <laughs> the logic difficulty. We're not going to disprove to the worm, the, the rogue wormhole that it made a mistake and we shouldn't be here. Yeah, we get retcon our way out of this by pointing out his logical fallacies. I will say, you know, the scene before this, Janeway's like, hey, dump all the sensor logs and all those other shit to my ready room. I want to do my own analysis on this. And it touches again on the fact that she was a science officer prior to getting into the command track. And I think it's pretty cool that, you know, they keep drawing that in there, that she's not fully reliant on other crews, or at least, you know, there's some independent thinking here in different departments reaching the same conclusion. It's the captain uh, in many of these cases who's, you know, down there in the trenches examining this data. They do really, I agree, they do a great job with making sure they reinforce Janeway's uh, past as a science officer, interest in scientific concepts. In fact, she has this nerd out moment with Bolana here in a minute. You mean where they fall in love, madly in love? They do. Um, uh, but I think all the prior captains to date have those elements. I mean, Picard was a diplomat and an archaeologist. Cisco was an engineer, you know, and a ship designer and, and that sort of thing. So there, there's been some, like, you've gotten tastes of their background prior to being in command. And they do a good job of doing that with Janeway. So she has, the boss cracks open a spreadsheet on her own. She can't figure this out. And then suddenly, Balana and her have this this moment of pure Star Trek in-universe nerdery where they kind of figure it all out. They figure out what's going on. They just stand up in front of the staff, and they're just, like, right in front of each other. Boob to boob. Right in the eyes, like, going back and forth, rapid fire, really into nerding out over their revelation about this uh, time paradox that they're in. When they both said, the, you know, like, oh, how do we fix this? Oh, warp particles. And they both say it at the same time. I haven't seen something like that on TV since, what was it, the old Folger ads? Or like, oh, what was the name of that That waiter in Paris? And like both like, Jean-Luc. I love this coffee. From General Foods International Coffees. I loved that waiter. Sean That's what that was. What this reminded me of. They figure out that um, to detect the the hole in this sort of time plot. bubble, in, <laughs> the hole in the plot to get out, yeah. to get out of the plot, and so they institute the plan. They find the hole, uh, but the hole's not big enough, so they gotta jam some shit into that hole so that they can get themselves out of this plot. Yeah, they need to lubricate it with some warp particles, some space KY from the Type 6 shuttlecraft. Uh, big shout out to Type 6. Was that a Type 6? It looked more angular. It looked like more like a Type 8. I was actually reading up on this today because I was so excited when I saw the Type 6 in the pilot. They're supposed to have a couple Type 6s and then they got something called a Type 9, I think, which also functions as a Type 2, which has a little bit of that overbite. And uh, some stretched out in the cells. Uh, I don't know. I I was looking on my phone. I meant to read it on the full screen. And unfortunately, I didn't have time to go full nerd on it. Type 2, type 6, type 8, type 9. Whatever shuttlecraft they're in, overbite, underbite, uh, with a bunk bed or or with the full suite in the back. The decision is made that Bolana and... Uh, Captain Janeway are going to go out there and they're going to massage this hole open a little bit using their their special techniques uh, so they can get uh, Voyager out because they're going to keep Tom on the ship because he's got to fly it through the, the rather narrow opening to get out. They keep Tom on the ship because the last time he was on a shuttlecraft with a female uh, co-worker, it ended up in some sexual misconduct. 
charges. Tom is banned from shuttlecraft in the rest of season one. He lost those privileges. <laughs> so they uh, they have more unlimited shaky cam mm-hmm. on the shuttle as they institute the plan. It works, kind of, um, but they have a problem. The The process of massaging the hole open has cut off the communications, and they are looking at two versions of Voyager, one that is real and one that would be a temporal shadow. And because now their communications have been cut off, they're not sure which one's which because sensors is telling them both is real. And they have this debate about which one they're going to try and land in as if they make the wrong choice, they're going to die which didn't seem super urgent. Like, if they had just acted immediately instead of debating it, they could have tried both. Mm. But I understand the need to, to build some drama to give them a point of conflict where Bolana shows a little maturity in having a, a, a disagreement with someone and it doesn't involve her throwing any cups at anyone's feet. I thought it was a, a good moment of uh, trying to rationalize, you know, because one Voyager was heading towards them, but it was farther away. The other was facing the other way, but it was closer and they couldn't choose, you know, which were the right one was. My point of observation is, well, which one has its uh, landing bay doors open would probably be the one that's expecting you to return back and get out of there. But I thought there was some missed opportunity. I don't know. I, I go off on these tangents in my head thinking about what if, and it kind of makes these episodes a little bit better for me than, than they actually might be. Like, So the this other Voyager that they keep seeing throughout the uh, episode, like you said, it's a, it's a temporal image. It's not a real thing. Like in uh, Next Gen, they would have situations where they're seeing other enterprises and they're legit real other enterprises, not these phantom images. I think I think it would be cool if they would have picked the wrong... Voyager, and if that was like a real corporal vessel, and you pick up some extra crewmates that are, you know, temporal displaced things from from a, a spatial anomaly fuck up like this. Like if you could get some Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen or whatever their names are, the twins, you know, the William and uh, Thomas Riker conundrum of like, yeah, you know, we actually got this extra captain and uh, extra chief engineer now because they've picked the wrong ship and they're just a part of the crew now. I, I think that'd have been a just you wait, is all I'll say. Just you wait. There's a Voyager episode that will scratch your itch, sir. Good. Yeah. Good. Gives me something to look one, forward to. It was one of the better ones, too. So I'll, I'll uh, hopefully it's as good in, good in real life as it is in my memory. So, um, and that's a relatively early one. I won't spoil it. Another part of that uh, shuttle trip was, of course, the um, the mending of fences between uh, Torres and Janeway. Janeway talks about, you know, what she read in her permanent file from Starfleet Academy and how all of, you know, the ballbuster teachers she had really actually loved her and were sad to see her go and whatever and everything's water under the bridge. And That's some classic 90s TV trope writing, but at least it was delivered in a way where both actors in the scene did it authentically, especially Kate Mulgrew, who I think was really good in this episode in particular. Yeah. Um, I feel like what what was lacking in that second half of, of the pilot, she was solid throughout this whole episode. I totally bought why she decided she needed to put Bolana in charge, ultimately despite the bad interview. She quietly acceded to Chakotay's point that the only way she's going to make this work is if she accepts some discontent from the Starfleet people and allow the Maquis people to have a little bit of say in what's going on. Like they didn't, they didn't ham hand it. They didn't, they didn't feel a need to go into much depth of her admitting that, but they showed her admitting that. I think that Janeway thinks that she's the smartest person on the ship because after all her one uh, Vulcan 
bridge officer is a, a dumb thug sitting over in security. I think that uh, she thinks she's the smartest person on the ship. That's why she wants to see all the data and do her own independent analysis. And I think that when she had her um, BFF moment in the ready room with uh, Torres about warp particles and she kind of saw that all right maybe Torres is playing on the same level that she is brain wise Janeway who stupidly condemned that entire crew to have to slow trek to, to star trek their way back home because she fucked up and uh blew up the ticket home now sees a way to try and unfuck her mistake and get people out of there and it means getting talent in the right places uh whatever the cost that makes sense if we accept the sloppy writing that slapped together at the end of the pilot to be a failing of Janeway as a character rather than a failing of the writers. Um, they pick the right Voyager, obviously. They they punch through. There's some real rapey dialogue about, yeah, like, just, just punch it. We've refrained for the most part of making too many sex-related jokes, but, man, this episode begs to have them done Yeah. Uh, with its dialogue. But yeah. at the end, it gets right down phallic. Like, time yeah. to punch through. They make it out, though, and sure enough, Bolana is put in charge of engineering. Uh, Chakotay gives her a little pep talk about not causing any more HR complaints. You know, they have this comedic scene where she says, please, and suddenly all the Starfleet people are like, oh, that's all we needed to hear. And they go to work. And then Joe Carey, he's a, he's a professional. He shakes her hand. He's like, oh, you're not going to get anything less than my best effort, you know. Bullshit. Like he stink palmed her. That dude had his fucking hand jammed so far up his uh, fucking jumpsuit. He'd been cooking that all day. And when he says, you're going to get my best, he means my best attempt to give you uh, dysentery if a half Klingon can have it. There was a line of dialogue there at the end between Chakotay and uh, Janeway. And uh, what jumped out, you know, Chakotay's like, you know, if roles had been reversed and you were on my ship, would you have followed me? And she's like, oh, well, no, fuck you. I like that he doesn't even have a name for the Maquis ship. The fucking space Al Camino, the, the Maquis Firebird. He's like, <laughs> if things had been reversed and it was Voyager that was destroyed and you had to join me on Maquis ship. <laughs> like, that's how that's how bad you are as a commander, dude. You didn't even name your fucking ship. Her response would be, if I was stuck on your fucking tran- you know, intergalactic Trans Am, I would have piled into the nearest sun and did a 360 kill myself. Yeah. I don't want to be in that stank mobile for whatever yeah. billion years it would take us to get back going at warp two or whatever the fuck that thing makes. Like, you know, you should be really happy you're stranded on my state of the art, you know, speed demon vessel. It could have been a lot fucking worse for you, bro. And overall, did you like the episode? I really liked it. I'd say on a 10 point scale. I mean, I put it right up there at a eight, maybe even a nine. Yeah, it was good. It was it was good Star Trek. It 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 really like started to pay off all of our unanswered questions. I've got four pages of note for the first origin story. This one, I mean, I got maybe a page at the most of notes. It was uh, it was hard to nitpick this one. I, I have notes, but they're mostly like liked this thing. I give it uh, maybe a seven point five, maybe a little lower than you do, just because I'm not keen on Robert Beltran's performance for most of it. I think everything with the Doctor was good. Everything with Kate Mulgrew was awesome. Um, yeah. I feel like by the end of the episode, you know, uh, Roxanne Dawson's trying starting to f- figure out how to play uh, Bolana other than just angry and throwing cups at feet. And Do you um, think these actors come into these roles and say, all right, this is what I'm building my character around is like where the character ends up? Or do you think they over-focus on the early flaws and it's why things feel goofy? I was interested in knowing why it is that Bolana feels so one-dimensional starting out, and 
sure enough, the the actress has said in the past, like, I didn't know how to play this character when I started, so I just was angry. And it wasn't yeah. until we got, you know, I started getting some more, like, feedback that I knew where I was supposed to go with this. I really uh, enjoyed the uh, IT technical problems with uh, the doctor's holographic yeah. projectors. And, you know, the, the amount of IT shenanigans I've had to deal with and just weird things where you're like, fuck it, it, it works enough now, just keep moving forward. Thinking of, like, some guy who's just getting distorted and turned into, like, this circus mirror creature because he was a low priority and it was working good enough really appealed to me. I do like that the doctor is currently being portrayed as essentially a piece of furniture that is uh, sentient and is displeased by being misused. Like yeah. it's, it's like a couch who's going to be really angry if you put your, your feet on him, and, yeah. and like and he will tell you um, because it, it, it's jarring to me because the, like I said when we were doing our little promo reel, uh, getting a feel for what we're going to do with this podcast. I'm when I watched random episodes of Voyager in the past, they're always relate season episodes when he's a very different personality as his character. So yeah. it was jarring to see it and it's actually kind of cool because yeah. of the nuance that you can see in the slow revelations he's having about being on and having this budding personality. I think that this should have been the second half to the pilot episode. They should have cut out all the caretaker crap, found some other reason to bring Kess and uh, Neelix on. And, and this was all the stuff that I wanted to see. It was a good ship-based episode, and it was a good... I thought a, a really... This is where the, the legacy of Trek, of TNG and DS9 started to shine, where they had a good space conundrum that was dangerous and interesting and ultimately you know a can-do attitude was able to get them through points off for the revel you know the revelatory moment not being particularly revelatory overall a much better stronger effort i would say on the downside this is basically one of the last episodes where we get any tension with the maquis element Aside mm. from Seska doing what Seska does, which is almost separate. And then I think the actual season uh, finale of season one. And that's it. So enjoy, I, I hope, I'm glad you enjoyed it because we don't get a lot of, of this uh, moving forward. So here's what I want to talk about this little open open floor part. So you're, you're a dude and you're living in the future and there's Starfleet. And, and I would ask you a question. If you were transported into the world of Star Trek and you were just a guy on Earth, would you go into Starfleet knowing what you know? I probably would. And I would because I think living in a utopian society with unlimited resources would be getting would become really boring if you didn't have something to really go out and do. And Starfleet's really the only game in town when it comes to going out and, like, experiencing any kind of danger i suppose yeah i mean if the the game you're looking for is like horrible disfigurement and fates worse than death because i'm looking at this thing and i'm like this temporal loop thing just seems terrifying and i started thinking about like the whole cosmology of the trek universes and all the things that they've flown through and and had a near miss on death like you know you're dealing with the enterprise you've got the flagship you got the best of the best and voyager seems pretty well stocked on can-do attitudes with some very quick thinking or whatever but like 
space is just full of terrible shit. And I think if it wasn't for the upbeat attitude of Star Trek, I think you could make like a really good space horror story out of uh, the voyages of some sort of Star Trek. Like it's it's event horizon grade stuff pretty much every other episode. And I gotta wonder, like at some level, does Starfleet Starfleet just suppress the horror stories of what actually goes on out there from the people of Earth and the Starfleet cadets because like who the fuck's going to sign up for stuff where you're getting jettisoned into space caught for 50 years in a, a repeating loop where you're dying 100 million times like what what is the average Starfleet officer you know what are they really considering at their core the, the fate worse than death that they feel that coming on on the bridge like oh please god don't be a world eater oh please god <laughs> don't be <laughs> don't don't be another you know space baby floating in space that's gonna oh please it's one of these things that gonna make all the walls bleed and we're gonna hear nothing but children screaming for the next hour well it's funny you bring that up because one of my favorite and here's how deep in the nerd i'm gonna get one of my favorite star trek novels bring in a conversation the tng novel I, I don't remember the name of it but i remember this scene incredibly vividly where this this um you know basically astrophysicist comes onto the enterprise and has this laundry list of all of the shit that the Enterprise D has run into. And he goes to this scene where she's in the briefing room and he's going through this with Picard, like thing after thing after thing. And she's like, do you realize that nobody else has these kinds of experiences? That ships will, will go through a 50-year you know, deployment cycle between being launched and, and being decommissioned and maybe run into one thing like you guys run into on a weekly basis? Like, people go their entire careers and nothing will happen. So it, it laid the seed of the idea that, that you know, the hero ships we see are the ones that are experiencing the weird shit. And most people in Starfleet have really boring, normal space careers. Where you they said that was a book? That was a book, yeah. Um, That's a pretty I, I good want, one. I want, to, I want to say it was one of Peter David's books. I can't remember the name of it. But it was this great scene where it's like one after another. She like goes through and she's like, I don't even know what this you named this thing. No one's ever run into this before. Like only you have run into this. Like there's all this heavy debate in our lifetime right now. Like do cell phones cause cancer and like all these, you know, things like, oh, fluorescent light bulbs are, are bad for you. All the little things that we worry about, like accumulating bad health, they're like, the fucking people on these starships, these hero ships, must have like so many terrible, terminally ill, sterilizing events happening to them that uh, <laughs> McKee is to be on a Miranda class bucket doing milk runs and not be on the fucking flagship if you want to keep your balls intact, you know, and to be unfazered. That's that's the key. That's the words take- to live by. Do you want to lay out what the next episode's going to be before we? Uh, yeah. Before we have our parting words. The next episode is. Time and again. So uh, as you might believe from the from the title, we've got another temporal conundrum episode on the horizon. Um, and this is a Janeway and Paris-focused episode. So we get to dive into our headcanon here and, and shortly. I don't want to dive into that headcanon. Give me, give me some Tuvok. Give me some of these other guys. I don't want to go into Cougar Town. Well, we'll see how that one goes. But for this episode, I, I think that the parting words of wisdom that most apply to the moral of this story would be the uh, good old rule of acquisition number 33. It never hurts to suck up to the boss. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to V'ger Please, A Hateful Voyage Through the Delta Quadrant. If you 
uh, would like to email us, uh, you can. We are at vgerplease at gmail.com. That's V-G-E-R-P-L-E-A-S-E at gmail.com. Email us with your questions, any anything that you want to ask us or for us to talk about on the air. Uh, we would be delighted if anyone wrote us anything, uh, just so we know someone is listening. That's Joe saying that. I, I'm not going to look at this email address. Joe, you're, you're in charge of it. You get all the hate mail and all the people telling us that uh, we're bad people and doing bad things. Yeah, that's the story of my life. So on, on that note, <laughs> uh, I am Joseph. I'm Peter. And thank you for listening to Be Your Please. Adios. Adios.